According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 10 this morning. Jeremiah chapter 10. Missed it by a few weeks. I was thinking uh, what chapter we're going to get to for Mother's Day. There is a chapter coming up, around 15 or 16 or thereabouts, where Jeremiah curses the day of his birth, and he laments, he laments that uh, his mother's womb was not his tomb, was not uh, the place of his death. So, um, yeah, real uh, cheerful message there. We'll, uh, We'll get to that. That's about four weeks from now, I think, three or four weeks. In any event, we do have Jeremiah 10, which my Pericope heading says, a satire on idolatry, and uh, it's an interesting pericope heading. I um, I wouldn't necessarily take this as a satire, but that's all right. We'll see what happens here. As it is a message against idolatry, and it is biting in its sarcasm, which I speak fluent sarcasm. So we'll uh, we should do well with this. We should uh, do very well with this chapter here today. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's humble ourselves before God the Father and ask for his blessing on the truth this morning. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of Isaiah and the faithfulness of Jeremiah. We thank you, Father, for the responses that they received during the days of Hezekiah in repentance and blessing, and uh, in the days after Josiah, Father, of rejection and judgment and discipline. And Father, I pray that this congregation would be equipped mightily with uh, the impact of what we need in the days ahead. And Father, I pray for this message on this day. The shepherds are going to be called out in this chapter. Father, shepherds who are not doing what they should be doing, they get spotlighted. And uh, when the shepherds fall short, the nation suffers. And I pray, Father, that we would be humble before this message today. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have one of the simplest messages ever given against idolatry. And it comes right here in these first 16 verses. We're going to handle verses 1 through 16 as a unit. Then we'll move on to verses 17 through 22, and then we wrap up the chapter with uh, verses 23 through 25. I typically give short shrift to that last paragraph, and so we'll see if we can pace things out better between now and the end of the hour, uh, because there is, I think, uh, a significant emphasis that I I do want to make in those final verses there, 23 through 25. But we start with verses 1 through 16, and we find out how stupid idolatry is. And that's the point that's being made. Idols are stupid. And idolatry is more stupid. All right? And this is so simple. A 10-year-old could preach this and probably did. I'm guessing Jeremiah was about 8 or 10 years old when he was first called to prophetic ministry. And the idea of the stupid idols that are literally dumb, that is, they cannot speak, and stupid in the sense that they don't know what God knows. And God, who of course knows everything and has declared the end from the beginning and everything along the way, is demonstrating the uselessness, the emptiness of idols, the vanity of idols. And so here is one of the Bible's simplest messages ever 
delivered against idolatry. Idols are stupid and idolatry is more stupid. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the Lord, the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, uh, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are a delusion, that is an emptiness, a vanity, because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. When it comes down to it, idols are man-made. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers. All right, and so it's as good as you can afford. All right, if you put a whole lot of gold and silver into it, well, then you were able to make a better idol for yourself than the the chump that couldn't afford so much silver and gold. And he's got an inferior idol, an inferior God, if you will. And whatever the case, they fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. See, that's a problem when your idol keeps falling over, right? And uh, things there, such as I think is hilarious when the Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant in their temple of Dagon, and every morning they would come and they would find that their statue of Dagon kept falling down during the night, was bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. And every morning the Philistines would go in there and their idol was bowing before the Ark, and they have to keep putting, I laugh every time I read that chapter in the book of Judges, they have to keep picking their idol up. All right. You know, I mean, it's one thing, a toddler you expect to pick up 20 times a day because they keep falling down. They're toddlers. What do you expect? But an idol, you know, if you have to pick your God up 20 times a day, that's not much of a God. All right. And if that's the God that you think is going to provide for you and and meet your needs and and answer your fears, and, and, and that's not much of a God. All right. That idol is as useless as the idolatry that you're you're uh, pursuing. And so we see these uh, these issues here. Uh, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and, and it's about as useful. And they cannot speak. That's why they're dumb. All right, and stupid. They must be carried. They they because they cannot even walk. All right. That's not the omnipresent God of the universe that we serve, who doesn't doesn't need to be carried, and he can walk, but doesn't need to walk because he's everywhere. All right. When he chooses to walk, when the word does become flesh and dwell among us, that carries a whole significance all on its own. And a preciousness and a tenderness that we can love is the fact that our Savior walked among us and lived our life. And we, sh- we should uh, rejoice in that over and over. We will do so at the communion table today. So they must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. That's how useless they are. So don't be scared of them. They can't hurt you. But also don't pray to them because they can't help you. All right? If the thing is, is just a stupid little statue thing that a, that a human was built by human hands, there is nothing it can do against you. There's nothing it can do for you. It is, it is a representation of a fallen angel. It is a demon posing as a god. And the false gods, they have their day coming. All right. They've already had their positional judgment. They will have their eternal judgment very quickly. And uh, we're going to be a part of that, which uh, we should see here before the end of this hour. 
So there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. We've got a couple of verses here. Six and seven kind of form a little interlude uh, before he gets back to describing again how stupid these idols are in uh, verses 18 and following. Well, there's a couple of little verses here that spotlight the Lord and how glorious he is. There's nobody like him. Certainly not that liar who said he would be like the Most High God. Uh, he's fallen short. They all fall short. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. Who uh, would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. It is your due. See, he loved me ere I knew him. Now all my love is due him. Right? You know, in uh, uh, our hymns there. It is due his holy name. For among all the wise men of all the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, the work of a craftsman in the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. All right, did I say, yeah, we're going to go all the way down through verse 16 in this first section here. Let me keep going. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. I'm going to stop. I'm going to get back to that here in a moment. Let's cover these early verses first. All right. Because that, those, those non-God gods, those non-creator gods, are the fallen angels that are posing as gods, and we want to make sure we understand that in our uh, advanced angelology. So first of all, the first couple of verses here, the fear of the Lord will guard us from the terror of the nation's idolatry. The fear of the Lord will guard us from the terror of the nation's idolatry. This world has no answers, and all it has is fear, and the idolatry of this world promotes that fear, all right? And in fact, I think the, the wisdom of this age betrays itself in some of their own admissions. Is religion the opiate of the masses? Well, they say it is, and in the case of the idolatry of this world, I, would be, I might agree with the thought. That humanity and and unbelievers, the fallen, unregenerate mind, they are scared. And they look to things that that can ameliorate their terror. And uh, Satan uses that terror. And Satan uses that fear. And it becomes a factor in his control over this lost and dying world. But what do we have? We have truth. We have Christ. We have perfect love that casts out fear. We have the provision of worshiping the one true God, and we can reject all of the idolatry that that, uh, fallen angels and, and unregenerate mankind can invent. You see, we should be a testimony to them. We should guard against being defiled by them. We're supposed to influence them, not the other way around. We should be salt and light. We should be a testimony Unbelievers should look to us and see the good works that we do and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We want to be to keep ourselves unstained by the world. And we've got to be very careful in this. All right? Because we do live among them. We work with them. They're our family, our friends, our neighbors. But we must guard ourselves from their idolatry lest their defilement rubs off on us. If you have a clean cloth and a dirty cloth and they rub together, you know what happens? The dirt rubs off 
on the clean. All right, the dirt rubs off on the clean. Now you got two dirty cloths. It's never the other way around. All right, we should be a testimony to them. And there's a whole string of scriptures here. And I'm going to have to be quick because <coughs> we run out of time on communion Sundays more often than not. But Leviticus 18, when you notice the uh, admonishment that was given to the Jewish people as a nation surrounded by Gentile nations, all right? Now, we don't throw away Leviticus out of our Bible because we're New Testament believers. We just adapt it and make application for who we are in the church. We are unbelievers surrounded by a world, a planet full of, un, uh, of unbelievers, right? We're saved, surrounded by unsaved people. And so the pattern we have for the Jewish nation surrounded by Gentile nations, we can imitate their admonitions to holiness, and we should. And so uh, Leviticus 18, uh, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. And it goes on. We have the first five verses here. Verse uh, five. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. And there is blessing in living a biblical lifestyle. And there is judgment in living an anti-biblical lifestyle. There are consequences of imitating the non-biblical lifestyle. And the rest of Leviticus 18 will outline that for you. Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 31. Deuteronomy 12, 19, I'm sorry, 29 through 31. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods that I also may do likewise? You shall not behave thus toward Yahweh your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates, which Yahweh hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. And this is uh, quite remarkable when you consider the paganism of the uh, prior inhabitants of this land and you consider the paganism that our generation is currently pursuing. And uh, I got to hear the uh, African tribal religion message that uh, that uh, the pastor delivered in Houston that uh, he delivered here, first of all, kind of as a trial run. Remember when Dan Hill was here last fall and Dan spoke on the African tribal religions? And why is it that tribalism and paganism is coming to our culture? It is. It is absolutely coming to our culture. And it's not just in the, the piercings and the tattoos and the stretched out earlobes. It's in the mindset of demonism. The mindset of demonism. I mean, who cares about blue hair? It's a heart all right? It's not the hair, it's the heart. Sorry about that. And the um, issues there, if it's demonism, if it's idolatry, that's what the Lord commands against. Not the tattoos, not the piercings, not the stretched out earlobes or the other things. Second Corinthians 6, verses 16 and 17 in the New Testament related to the church age, related to you and I in the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 and 17. 
come out from among them and be ye separate, we're told. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. Remember, Israel had a temple. We are a temple. Do you understand the difference? It is huge. It is, it, there's no, you cannot unite the two. People that try to tell you that, well, Israel was just the Old Testament church, or, well, the church is just New Testament Israel, they are wrong, wrong, wrong as the day is long. All right? Israel had a temple. We are a temple. That is huge. They had a priesthood. We are a priesthood. So many other differences. We are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so the pattern of holiness that they illustrated is the pattern we should learn from and live by in the New Testament. We're doubly accountable. Therefore, come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Interestingly enough, in this passage, we got a, a medley of Torah and Isaiah and, uh, and David. All right, in, in 2 Samuel, we got a, a neat uh, spectrum of Old Testament theology that will be fulfilled for Israel in their millennial kingdom. But we live it today. We make application today in the church age when it comes to personal holiness. Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5 is a warning in, in the tribulation. For, for believers, those with insight, better get out of, get out of Dodge, right? Get out of uh, commercial Babylon before commercial Babylon is destroyed. All right? And, uh, you know, that may very well be the United States of America when it comes right down to it. We won't know because we'll be raptured and gone before it happens, but commercial Babylon is doomed. And believers, tribulational believers, need to be gone before the destruction hits. So these issues are significant. Secondly, idols commonly have tottering problems. <laughs> okay, Idols commonly have tottering problems. And I've, I found this. Every idol worshiper I encounter, they hate God, they hate the Bible, and they love pointing out things that they think are problems with my Christianity. And to hear them tell it, their idolatry is just logical and rational and normal and, and, and makes sense. And I'm looking saying, Really? Your idol has a tottering problem. It, it's fallen over every time I look at it. It can't stand on its own. It needs something else to prop it up. Generally, it needs my God's moral standard of righteousness. Because your idolatry keeps insisting on something you guys keep calling good and evil. And you think I'm evil. But wait a minute, this absolute standard of good and evil needs my God for your idol to be propped up. They cannot speak, they cannot walk, they cannot harm, they cannot help. And this whole paragraph here, this section in verses 3 through 5 that Jeremiah is preaching, I think he learned it from Isaiah. Uh, it is so reminiscent uh, in, in theme, certainly, not word for word, but of Isaiah 46, verses 5 through 7. And given that there was uh, you know, that span of time between Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, he had the opportunity to learn from this text. Just as uh, Daniel had opportunity to learn from Jeremiah's text, I believe that Jeremiah had the opportunity to learn from Isaiah's text. Don't believe the liars that tell you these texts didn't come about until centuries later. Isaiah 46, verses 5 through 7, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? 
Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon their shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. If you have a man-made God, that's what you got. You got what you bought, right? You get what you pay for. And uh, that's not the God that saved you. That's not your creator, redeemer. That is something you did. And uh, hooray for you. But it doesn't measure up and it won't get you to heaven. Compared to God, the idols cannot compare. And uh, interesting how Jeremiah 10, verses 6 through 10, connects and links very well with Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 115. Verses 1 through 8. Psalm 115. We don't know who wrote Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. You know, do you ever pray that? You pray what you're praying for, not for your sake, but for his sake. It's not for my glory, Lord, but for your glory. I I need some help here. All right. Not for my glory, not for my good pleasure, but for your good pleasure, Lord. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? Okay, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. My favorite definition of sovereignty is right there. God does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Every idol manufacturer is going to become as immobile and mute and, and uh, stupid and, and non-responsive as the idols they make because they're all going to die. They're all going to die and their corpse is going to lay there like the idols that they manufactured. And it's uh, pretty blunt, I think, in that respect. The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth have an eternal judgment pending. And this is, we would stop, man, if we're going to teach Jeremiah verse by verse, this verse takes weeks. This verse, by the way, we have an obscure Aramaic verse in the middle of a Hebrew book. Most of Jeremiah is written in Hebrew. Most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. There are stretches of Daniel. In fact, about half of Daniel is significantly Aramaic instead of Hebrew. There are stretches of of, uh, Ezra that are written in Aramaic rather than in Hebrew. And there's a smattering of places elsewhere. Um, There's a scattering of Aramaic terms that are sprinkled throughout the Gospels even in uh, personal names and place names and expressions and things, uh, even in the the New Testament, in the Gospels. But in the book of Jeremiah, we have this enigmatic. Enigmatic is 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 a Latin term that means weird, all right? There is a strange Aramaic verse that's thrust in the middle of a Hebrew chapter. And it's verse 11, right here in this text. And it jumps out at you. It grabs your attention. It makes me mad because it, it's, it looks like Hebrew and it's not. <laughs> All right? It's because Hebrew uses the Aramaic alphabet. And so you think you can read it. And then you realize, oh, wait a minute. It's using different rules. All right, it's got endings you don't like and it does other things. Jeremiah 10 and verse 11 
Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And I find this extraordinary. The, the switch for one verse in Aramaic to address the gods that are not God. The gods that did not create the earth. All right? Aramaic is on the verge of becoming a global or a regional trade language. The Babylonian Empire is going to sweep over and the Davidic throne is going to be vacated. The times of the Gentiles are about to commence. And there is going to be a sweeping uh, historical activity from Babylon to Persia to Greece and to Rome that's going to stretch for the rest of the Old Testament, in between the Testaments, into the New Testament, even to this very day. We're still waiting for the toes of that statue to appear, if you've ever studied Daniel chapter 2. The feet and toes of the Daniel 2 statue have not yet appeared on this earth, but they will. They are on the way. All right, And that whole stretch of Gentile history is the program that's being run by these gods who are not God, the gods who did not create the heavens and the earth. Satan and his administration, his whole structure, where he's called the God of this age, is presently running this world. And if you have been with us in the past, we've done lengthy, lengthy studies on advanced angelology and all the issues here. The highest order of all the angelic realm, they were called Elohim. They were called gods, all right? They were Elohim and they were Beneha Elohim. They were gods and sons of God. And they, were, they, they weren't creators. They weren't omnipotent. They weren't like the one true God. God is the God of gods, all right? But they were called gods. And that's what this passage is addressing. These gods are supposed to learn from men. We are the resolution of the angelic conflict, not the angels. All right. So thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth. Not the elect angels, of course, that stayed faithful, Michael and Gabriel and the good guys. They're not going to perish. But Satan and Abaddon and Apollyon and Beelzebub and all the rest of them, they will perish. They will apalumi, as we understand eternal apalumi in the lake of fire. The fire has been prepared for Satan and for his angels. The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth have an eternal judgment pending. And uh, not only verse 11 here, but also connected in verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 15. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. That's why the king over them is Abaddon, the destroyer, the one that causes to perish. All right, so there's a whole lot that we can take a look at there. Um, by the way, we have a role in that judgment. Does it bother you that the judgment is still pending? Doesn't it bother you? I mean, sometimes it bothers me if, if a murderer gets the death penalty and then 35 years later it finally gets executed in Huntsville, Texas. And you're like, why is this guy just getting executed now? His victim died in 1985. Why is the, the murder just being put to death now? That, that's a delay that bugs me. But consider the thousands of years that have intervened between the fall of Satan and his eventual casting into the lake of fire. That, that may bother me more and probably should bother me more related to eternal heavenly things instead of earthly stuff. But um, consider though that the final sentence cannot yet be pronounced because the final judges are not yet prepared. You and I are the final judges. And the bride of Christ is still being prepared. We will judge the angels. We will judge the world, we're told. 
And so until the body of Christ is made suitable for the marriage of Christ, we're not ready to judge the angels yet. And so Satan is still prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Okay? Other issues that happen there. Psalm 96 and verse 5. I'm going to have to start going quicker here. Um, these are the gods that did not make the heaven and the earth. They're still called gods. Uh, Psalm 82 addresses this. And their failure in the judicial realm is significant in Psalm 82. Those are angels. They're called gods in Psalm 82. Deuteronomy 32, they're called gods. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus speaks of the fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, unbelievers die and they go to hell, but they wasn't even designed for humans. All right, the lake of fire was designed for the angels. 2 Peter 2, 3 addresses this, this swift destruction upon themselves. It, the judgment from long ago is not idle, say the judgment from long ago is not idle. That's Second Peter 2 and verse 3. Let's talk about the captivity then. If I have time, I'll come back to this slide. I'm just going to let this go for now. Captivity is not a good thing, but it will work together for good. Captivity is not a good thing. The Bible doesn't say that everything is good. But Romans 8.28 says everything will work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So if you're not saved, not only is everything not good, but everything isn't going to work together for good either. <laughs> All right? You want to get saved so you can start claiming such promises as Romans 8.28. The uh, redeemed nation likewise has a Romans 8.28 principle as a nation. It will work together for their good. Their nation will be restored even if individual members of their nation die in captivity. All right, and we understand that as well. Just because all Israel will be saved does not mean that every Jewish person on the planet trusts in Christ and receives eternal life. Now, Jewish people will reject Christ and die as unbelievers and go to hell. But the nation is what will be saved. As a nation, collectively, they have a salvation on the other side of Antichrist and the tribulation. So verses 17 through 22. Pick up your bundle from the ground, you who dwell under siege. What's left to do? You've been surrounded. You've been surrounded by Babylonians for two years. What's left to do? How about packing your bags and going off to your captivity? For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time. You know, the earlier captivities were much more gentle in terms of 605 and 597 B.C. This one is like being launched out of a catapult. I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and will cause them distress, that they may be found. Oh, what a beautiful purpose clause. That they may be found. Isn't that beautiful? And we had to adapt this to a song. Instead of marching to Zion, we're being slung out of Jerusalem. All right, well, if a nation is being destroyed, we're being slung out. And uh, a land will be given its rest, and a defiled land will be given to another people in terms of God's sovereignty over a land. Anyway, so this is not quite marching to Zion. This is being slung out of Zion. And uh, maybe some of the musicians among us can uh, craft a hymn on that. But notice, I will cause them distress because I'm a meanie. I will cause them distress because I'm a twisted, demented, masochistic God that likes causing distress among creatures. No, that they may be found. They weren't getting found any other way. 
They weren't responding to prophets. They weren't responding to the Word of God. If you don't learn the lessons God has for you the right way or the easy way, He'll teach you the hard way. (coughs) It's called Hebrews 12. It's called discipline. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord as a father loves his children. See? Oh, there's so much here. Uh, So there's a good purpose to this (coughs) judgment. Woe is me because of my injury. My wound is incurable. But I said, truly, this is a sickness and I must bear it. If it's incurable, how do you bear it? What's the other side of something terminal? (coughs) Well, God takes us to the other side. My tent is destroyed. All my ropes are broken. My sons have gone from me and there are no more. There is no one to stretch out my tent again or set up my curtains. For the shepherds have become stupid and have not sought the Lord. Now it's really bad. I mean, we know idolatry is stupid. We had an earlier portion of the chapter told us that idolatry is stupid. But now it's the shepherds. And they're just as stupid as the idolaters. Okay? The shepherds have become stupid and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered. And all their flock is scattered. When the shepherds fail to shepherd, the, uh, the flock is doomed the sound of a report, behold, it comes, a great commotion out of the land of the north to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a haunt of jackals. And so there's the captivity. And Jerusalem is leveled. The place is vacated. They're taken off into 70 years, 70 years of captivity before Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah bring them back, bring a portion of them back. Well, captivity is not good, but it will work together for good. Sometimes the harshest of discipline is necessary in order to teach the toughest of lessons. Jeremiah describes it. Ezekiel describes it. Ezekiel 6, verses 8 through 10. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two. He describes it again in 1 Timothy 1, 20. The lessons that we learn, and sometimes it's difficult. Paul is delivering over uh, enemies uh, to discipline that they may learn something that they're not learning otherwise. I find that significant as well. Ezekiel 6, verses 8 through 10. And so it's not fun, it's not pleasant, but who can we blame for this? Would we be here had we not learned the easy way? (laughs) If we would have been learning and living and applying the doctrine, would these remedial classes be necessary? You know, who takes remedial algebra when you passed algebra the first time, right? Other than, I mean, I did just because I was having fun in summer school. But normal people don't go to summer school just because they like being in school. All right? You take your remedial courses because you failed something. All right. Ezekiel 6, verses 8 through 10. In all your dwellings, cities will become waste and the high places will be desolate that your altars may become waste and desolate, your idols may be broken and brought to an end, your incense altars may be cut down, your works may be blotted out, the slain will fall among you and you will know that I am the Lord. This is how they're going to learn. However, I will leave a remnant for you will have those who escaped the sword among the nations where you are scattered among the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they have been carried captive. In some cases, the global Jewish diaspora is merciful on God's part. I mean, if a Hitler, if, a, if Germany wants to exterminate them all, well, okay, that's one place. 
All right, but they are everywhere. God has scattered the Jewish people to the four corners of the earth. And so they will remember me among the nations to which they have been carried captive, how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me, by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster on them. It's not in vain. It's not for no purpose. It is for his purpose. And it will bring about their repentance. Ultimately, of course, it's Antichrist in Armageddon. It's the tribulation. That will be the final piece of judgment that will humble the Jewish people so that Israel will look upon him whom they pierced. They will call out to Jesus Christ for their salvation. That's what it's going to take. Sometimes it is the harshest of discipline that's necessary in order to teach the toughest of lessons. 1 Corinthians 11.32 in the New Testament for us today. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. This is in our communion chapter here where we judge ourselves rightly. We must make sure when we partake of communion that we're in fellowship. We don't want to judge ourselves inaccurately. We don't want to invite judgment upon ourselves. God uses judgment. God uses discipline so that we will not be condemned along with the world. He rescues us. He loves us enough to not let us go down that path, the path of destruction the world is headed on. Finally, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 20. And this is an aspect of of apostolic authority that I have no sense is given to pastors today, thankfully. But nevertheless, even if a pastor does not assign somebody to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, nevertheless, there are consequences when a believer departs and puts judgment on himself in many ways. 1 Peter 1.20, these are folks that suffer shipwreck in regard to their faith. And so, you know, if you can't suffer shipwreck if you're never on the ship, you can't depart from faith if you're never in the faith. People are too quick to say, well, those are unbelievers that were never saved in the first place. I can't read it that way. Because they were saved. That's the whole point. We want to be on guard that we don't follow that example. And uh, we're on the ship. So look out for the shipwreck. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan... Why? For sadistic torture purposes? No. Discipline is instructive. They're not going to learn from the Apostle Paul anymore. Well, maybe they'll learn this way. All right? So that they will be taught not to blaspheme. You know, and it is interesting that the prayers, my prayers, how they get shaped for folks that have departed and whatever. And sometimes they leave for right reasons, and that, that's a whole different kind of prayer life. But sometimes they leave for wrong reasons, and that's a whole different kind of prayer life. And sometimes they leave all mad at you and mad at me and mad at God and mad at everything. And, and uh, you know, the words that, that Boehner had for Cruz get applied to the pastor here and, and uh, different things about the devil incarnate. And, um, and okay. How, how, do the, how does the prayer life get shaped? And what is the discipline upon a sheep that's out there in the midst of the wolves? You know, because you're the, the, the provision for you is your shepherd. And well, what have you done to your shepherd? All right. What are you going to do against the wolves? What, what does a sheep do one-on-one with a wolf pack? 
right? Um, the, the sheep needs a shepherd. Different applications there. So captivity is not a good thing, but it does work together for good. Sometimes the harshest of discipline is necessary to teach the toughest of lessons. And for a nation now, the final straw, the final straw is when stupid shepherds fail to shepherd. The final straw. We already saw the stupid idol worshipers. Now we've got stupid shepherds. And they are just as idolatrous as the stupid idol worshipers. When stupid shepherds fail to shepherd. Fox News will never tell you this. CNN will never tell you this. MSNBC will never tell you this. Or whatever channel you like. All right, They won't tell you this. They will point to economic conditions. They'll point to stock market. They'll point to politics. They'll point to politicians. They'll point to everything imaginable. They'll, they'll, they'll blame corporations. They'll blame international corporations. They'll blame whatever. A nation comes under judgment when believers stop learning doctrine. When shepherds quit shepherding. We lose our salt and our light. We lose the impact we have in our culture. In our community, in our state, in our region, in our nation. And it's gone. It is absolutely gone. To the point now that biblical norms and standards are ridiculed and mocked and reviled. And fornication is glorified. Unbiblical lifestyles are celebrated and paraded. And if you speak against it, you're a hater. Because Christian values, biblical values, are no longer the salt and light they used to be in this nation. Yeah, it used to be an admitted adulterer would not be hired by a CEO. In, in, in an American corporation, they would look at a man and a flaw in his character and say, hey, if you're not faithful to your wife, you're gonna, we can't trust you in business. We can't trust you with our company. And it was, uh, it was, it was, it was a horrible thing. Now it's celebrated. Now we're going to elect somebody. Admitted adulterer in any event. When shepherds fail to shepherd. Do you see what it says here? In verse 21, the shepherds have become stupid. They have not sought the Lord. What are they doing? They're not preaching doctrine. What are they doing? They're preaching themselves. They're making up something. They're preaching their own message. You know, you deserve to be happy. And they're writing books. And they're filling basketball stadiums. They have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered. Man, they live in a house bigger than most zip codes, but they have not prospered. They have not prospered. And all their flock is scattered. Because true prosperity is the treasure that's laid up in heaven. It's not the, the square footage of the, of the uh, thing here on earth that's going to get burned anyway. Uh, this will come back again, by the way. If you come back in two weeks, you'll have a similar message in chapter 12 and verse 10. My shepherds have ruined my vineyard. They have trampled down my field. They have made my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. Who did that? The shepherds did that. Pastors that weren't pastoring did that. Pastors that were fluff and fun and games did that. Uh, man, you want to talk shepherding? You're talking Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Why is it the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah, the 23rd Psalm, the 20, what's, what's up with 23 and shepherds? I don't know. But um, 
Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel, not in Ezekiel, it's 34, Psalm 23, anyway. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are attending my people. Okay, It's not a happy message. The shepherds are in trouble. The good, great, and chief shepherd is about to hit, hit them hard. And that's what happens. We even had an earlier glimpse of this back in chapter 3, 315. You might recall, seven weeks ago in, Genesis, in uh, Jeremiah 3.15, a promise of what they can look forward to in the millennial kingdom, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. Could you imagine? In Jesus' day, what do they want? In Jesus' day, they just wanted Rome gone. They wanted the Gentiles out of here. They wanted a king. They wanted a conqueror. I didn't see any of those guys craving after a shepherd who would feed them doctrine. See, and that's what they had when Jesus Christ walked this earth. Then there's the final straw. What's happening in our nation today? What, what kind of churches are packing the doors? What kind of books are stuffing the shelves? What is the health and condition of Christianity today? I'm talking nominal Christianity in our nation today. And why are they just as worldly as the unbelievers? The same attitudes, the same mindset, the same philosophy, the same psychobabble, the same everything. The same tolerance, the same acceptance, the same anti-biblical biases that are outside the church are inside the churches. Hmm. Personal lessons ought to be learned even in the midst of national judgment. You know, if our nation is destroyed, we're going to learn in the process. We will learn lessons each step of the way. Jeremiah 10, verses 23 through 25. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself. Well, that's contrary to the world's message today, isn't it? Look inside yourself, search your feelings. A man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. Man, now I've got to throw away all my self-improvement books, all my uh, self-directed uh, books. Look within myself. Follow your dreams. Correct me, O Lord, but with justice, not with your anger, or you will bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you. And that may include my nation. That may include us. Do we have the divine viewpoint to accept that God is right and just and fair as he destroys our nation? On the families that do not call your name, for they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him, and have laid waste his habitation. Ultimately speaking, of course, even Babylon, that God uses as a tool, they too come under judgment for judging Israel, for judging the Jewish people, and principles there. All right? Personal lessons ought to be learned, even in the midst of national judgment. Did you know that we actively walk? We've been studying this. We actively walk. Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit. We actively walk. But we do not choose our own course. We do not choose our own course. Then the sooner you learn that, the better. 
the quicker you identify with a Christian way of life and that it is a race set before you. It is not a race you pick out for yourself. God didn't save you, give you eternal life, and then sit back and say, okay, what do you want to do now? All right. He didn't uh, ask input for what you want to do to serve him. He saved you on the good works which were prepared beforehand before the foundation of the earth that you should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. Right? Hebrews 12.1, run with endurance, the race that's set before you. It doesn't say run any old race you pick out for yourself. Say, you know, I mean, who you know, if, if it was up to us, we'd pick out the easy race. I want the, uh, I want the, the 10-yard dash. No, dash is too fast. A 10-yard mosey. And the 10-yard mosey better end at the refrigerator <laughs> with a beverage of some sort. All right? And God says, no, you've got a, you've got a, a 10K. You've got, a, you've got a, a half marathon. You've got a marathon. No, you've got a... And he's got a course that's set before you. You've got a triathlon to run. God picks out that course. This is... Uh, this is key, all right? Let's look at these, and then we've got communion today. But Psalm 37, do we get to pick out our own path? Does God bless everything we do because of us doing it? Or does God bless what He tells us to do? And we're blessed if we do it. Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24 The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. God delights in God's way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. You know what that presupposes, don't you? It presupposes that you're holding his hand to begin with, that you're walking in his way. If you're walking in your own way, and you're not holding his hand, you're holding your own sin nature's hand, well, what happens then when you fall? I love the language on this. It's like a toddler. You know, he's just learning how to walk and you're holding on to his hand and you're walking along and yeah, he, he's got no center of gravity or he's not aware of it. And he just tumbles, right? And he's going to go off the thing and accept that mom and dad is holding his hand. And so then he just kind of dangles and whatever he's suspended and then gets propped back up on his feet again. God will do that with you and with me so long as we're holding his hand. So long as we're walking his walk. Now, if we let go of his hand and go walk our own walk, this verse doesn't have a promise that applies to us. So don't blame God and say, well, you didn't fulfill your promise. I fell headlong. I smashed my head open. Yes, you did. Because you weren't holding your hand, his hand. Proverbs 16, 9. Do I need to turn there or can you quote it? Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You got it all figured out. I was going to be a homicide investigator by the time I turned 30. That was my goal. Included four years as an MP, included four years in the University of Washington, included a law enforcement career, Lake Forest Park Police Department, Seattle Police Department. And my goal was to be a homicide investigator by age 30. So now I'm past that. Yeah. Late. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. That's all right. Because the plans of man, who cares? Right? It's the plans of God. It's the plans of God. So that's Proverbs uh, 16 and verse 9. It's the Lord who directs his steps. Proverbs 20 and verse 24. 
Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? You know, just live day by day, trust in the Lord, walk his walk, and rejoice when he chooses to unveil things before you. And if there's things you can't figure out, well, rejoice in that too. Say, thanks, Lord. I thank, I thank God every time he keeps me in a sanctified ignorance. I say, because I just assume that if I would have known too much too soon, I'd have gotten scared and run away from something. So I rejoice in the fact that he doesn't make me aware of stuff that, that would have intimidated me. And uh, before I know it, man, we've got a training ministry. We're ordaining pastors. We're teaching Greek. We're teaching Hebrew. We're doing all this stuff. And wow, who would have ever thought such a thing could have happened? Of course, Ephesians 2.10, we're saved into good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We didn't prepare those works. God prepared those works. We benefit by walking in the works that he's prepared. Hebrews 12.1, lay aside the encumbrances, the sin that so easily entangles us, and run with endurance the race that's set before us. We didn't pick out the race. We probably don't like much of the race. There's probably turns that we don't like. There's obstacles. There's things to crawl under. It's like you know, the army obstacle course and you're gonna go through the mud and under the barbed wire and you're gonna go over the wall that's a pretty high wall and you got i mean there is just unpleasant stuff and you look around and satan by the way says this road's a lot easier all right here's a shortcut there's no mud here no we run with endurance the race that's set before us the walk of the believer is one of disciplined instruction disciplined instruction we get that the hand of god's discipline is upon us what son is there whom his father does not discipline the son that the father does not acknowledge the son the father does not love the son that's not even a son he's a bastard in hebrews chapter 12 something else our culture has lost is the sense of uh bastardy the sense of uh of judgment the 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 discipline the cultural discipline without a father and a mother in marriage raising the next generation as unto the Lord. Jeremiah 10, 24, we'll come back to this concept in Jeremiah 30 and verse 10, but it is disciplined instruction. That's why the shepherds let it go. People don't want it. So the stupid shepherds say, well, they don't want it. I'm not going to give it to them anyway. They give them what they want. Tickle your ears and the nation pays a price. Ultimately, nations and families, that parallel, that tandem is remarkable. Nations and families receive wrath from God for their anti-Semitism. If you devour Jacob, the God of Jacob will devour you. That's how it works. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And any nation that devours Jacob comes under the judgment function of the justice of God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will hammer those nations that afflict the Jewish people. And for a long, long time, America was a place of freedom, was a place of refuge. We provided domestic and international blessings to the Jewish people. And that has gone away. We are now siding with the Muslims. We are hostile to the Jewish people. Documented just this week that we deceived Israel as far as our intentions related to Iran that we kept insisting, that we, we assured them. Israel was prepared to attack Iran's nuclear facilities. And we assured them that we would not let Iran go nuclear. At the very time, we already had agreements with Iran to let them go nuclear. And we lied to the Jewish people. And what do we get? What's our consequence? 
Don't say it. Yeah, okay, you said it. (laughs) A nation is in trouble. Jeremiah 10, 25, Jeremiah 30, 16, Genesis 12, 3, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 7. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. It's as simple as that. Absolutely as simple as that. I mean, economically, that's one thing. I mean, I get it, all right? Keynesian economics is a train wreck. Some people like it. Austrian economics is gorgeous, and people think it's evil. But you can have any kind of economics you want under the sun as long as you don't curse the Jewish people. (laughs) All right. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for Jeremiah. This young man preached all these messages and he was so faithful. Father, uh, I pray that we would learn these lessons, that we would be prepared even now, Father, for when when our fall comes, what will be asked of us Will we have the insight to shine brightly? Will we learn what we need to learn as we run with endurance the race that's set before us? I ask that we be serious. And I pray that our nation would wake up, that pastors in our nation would quit the ear tickling and start feeding their flock, digging it up and dishing it out and feeding their flock. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.